How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. It's so wonderful. Yeah, we can give a clap. God's doing some good stuff. Uh, if you're new with us here this morning, it is so great to have you here. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. We're in the beginning set of a series called God Is, where we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer. And specifically, instead of just looking at it as, as a template for prayer, it's actually an opportunity to discover God's heart to see God's heart for you, for me, for our world, but also for us to understand a better way of seeing who God is. Now, last week, we started off with the prayer, and I think, how many of you, by show of hands, are familiar with the Lord's Prayer? Go ahead and give me a, give me a shout out. How many of you are familiar with the prayer? There we go. Okay, everybody, I think even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We've, we're familiar with that. And last week we talked about that danger of familiarity can sometimes lead to ritual. Now, not all rituals are bad, but when rituals just become rituals, they can turn into ruts. And what, what God wants from us is not for us to be in a rut, but to see his heart. Because this is why Jesus says, not this is what you should pray, but this is how you should pray. There's a map, there's a guide, there's an unlocking of something holy and beautiful in front of us. Now, he starts off in Matthew 6 with this word, our. And that word, our, is a reminder that the we is bigger than me. We're part of a community, something that's bigger than us. And this is problematic sometimes for us in America because so much of our faith has become personalized. And don't get me wrong, we need a personal faith with Jesus. Amen? I feel like that's like the holy of holies just kind of coming in right there. It's like God's swelling on us. The hour is meant to be something that draws us into community. But Jesus doesn't just stop with the word hour and telling us that we're part of a community. Now he reminds us that we're part of a family. Our Father who is in heaven. And that family part is so important because you and I are part of something bigger than us. Jesus didn't come to make us more religious. Trust me, there's more than enough religion going around. Jesus came to make us family. So much so that the Apostle Paul describes it as we are adopted sons and daughters of the King, that we literally are heirs to the throne of Christ, which is a pretty remarkable thing when you think about it. Paul says it this way, every heavenly blessing is that you're in ours, you're in my disposable right here and now, not just in the future. You have access to God right now. Now, some of you may not be religious. Some of you may not be Christian. I'm assuming in a crowd this size, we have people here that maybe you are here simply because someone invited you or you really like being outside during the summer in the park or maybe you're visiting and you don't have a church home. I want you to hear this, that in Jesus, we are made not just holy, but we're made into a family. And that family is diverse, it's ethnic, it's beautiful. There is something wonderful about it. Now, I also realize that within this idea of a father, not everybody has a great relationship with a father. Some of you have never known your dad. Some of you maybe had an abusive father. Some of you had amazing fathers. 
But the difference between our heavenly father and an earthly father is that our heavenly father is perfect. Everything he does, every good and perfect gift comes from the heavenly father above. That's James chapter 1. It reminds us that the God we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a relational heart in mind. That it's not just about being saved from something, saved from hell. It's actually being saved for something. Jesus wants a relationship with you. The Father wants a relationship with you. The Holy Spirit wants a relationship with you. If you have your Bibles, or if you have the Bible app, or the Zion app, okay, can I real quickly, by a shout, who has downloaded the Zion app so far? Let me hear a shout. Who's got it? That's awesome. Did you know right now we just passed, I think we're over 500 downloads on the Zion app. And one of the cool things about this is that it's not just about Zion. It's a way for us to connect to each other, to be the family, but also to hear what God is doing and learn what God is doing in Zion, in our community, and what he wants to do in Clear Lake. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app or your Zion app, turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's to the right. It's the first book of the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 9, and this is all we're going to be in today is just verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now that, that word hallowed is interesting. We don't use it very often. In fact, it's an intentional word that Jesus is using. And the idea, just like the word our was intentional, Jesus wants to be reminded it's not just my father, it's our father. This word hallowed actually comes, it has two kind of very different Greek uh, words that connect to it. One is in Hebrew, one is in Greek. And these words convey something that we may miss, okay? So now I want you to think about this. Here are the examples that we use for hollow. We have Halloween. That's one of our examples. You might say when you walk onto a religious ground or a cemetery or a spiritual place, you'll say, this is hallowed ground. But here's the idea, and it's not just to be made holy. It's not just holiness. The word in Hebrew is Kadesh. And in Kadesh, this is what it means, to make or render something set apart, different, or as the Bible calls it, holy. In Greek, the word is hagiazo, which means to cleanse, to purify, to make sacred. These two words kind of is where we get our idea of the word hallowed. And hallowed doesn't mean holy is God, God's name. It actually means to make God's name holy. The Lord's Prayer reminds us that our Heavenly Father, our job is to make the name of God, the name of Jesus famous. Amen? That's why we're here. But more importantly is we want to pray that God makes his name famous. Don't go that way. We are called to make God's name famous in the world. But we also want God to do that. Now I want you to think about why is God's name so important for a minute. We all know there are, when somebody reaches like elite status, they don't have two names, they just have one, like Oprah. When I say Oprah, how many of you know Oprah? We all know who Oprah is. How about Prince? 
Yeah? Prince up in Minneapolis, Purple Rain, okay? There's a certain level that when you get to a level of fame, you just have one name. And in God, he cares about his name. There's this thing that we see, particularly in the Old Testament. We see it a little bit in the New. Where when God has an encounter with someone, he'll often change their name. And the reason is this, is that in the old world, in the ancient world, names weren't just picked because they sounded cool. They were chosen because they had a significance. Jacob, for instance, meant the liar. Jacob deceived and he consistently deceived throughout his life until he has a wrestling match with God. And as he wrestles God and he wrestles through the night and it says that Jacob doesn't give up wrestling with God. And after he's finished, he says to the, to the God, to God he's wrestling, he says, listen, I will not stop until you bless me. And it says that the angel of the Lord, God, touches his hip and then says, now I'm going to give you a new name, Israel, the one who wrestled with God. We see this idea of names having significance. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses has left Egypt. He's been, technically, he's ran away. He fled Egypt into the desert, fleeing from the Egyptians and fleeing from the Hebrews. And as a shepherd, he's hanging out and he notices this bush that is burning, but it's not consumed. And as he approaches in curiosity, he comes up to the bush and he realizes that this is holy, hollowed ground. And he takes off his shoes and he has this encounter with God. And God says, here's the thing, Moses, I'm calling you to go out and deliver my people out of Pharaoh's hands. And Moses goes, first of all, Lord, who am I? Who am I that I'm going to go and do this? Now, I want you to think about this. So often we don't realize it. Up until this point, the only people who had a relationship with the God of the Bible were the ancestors of the Israelites. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For 400 years, no one had heard from God. They'd only heard stories about God. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's courts, and yet here he is. He has an encounter with the God of the Bible, and he doesn't know who he's talking to. And so he says to the burning bush, okay, you want me to do this? Whose authority am I supposed to be going out under? What God is calling me to go? Because he's probably thinking it's a, an Egyptian God. It might be Ra or Amnon or one of those gods. And instead, God responds this way. I am who I am. Those small words convey so much because here's what, when God says this, I am who I am, he's not just saying, I am God. He is everything. I am eternal. I am holy. I am all in all. But then this isn't even technically God's name. In Exodus 3, 13 through 15, he talks about the I am who I am. He is God alone. He is absolute God. He is, he is the standard for truth and beauty and all that is. Everything exists because of this God that Moses encounters in all just a few moments, few words. But in 15, listen to what God says. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, and there's this word in all capitals, Lord. That's actually not what the word is. This is the first time that God reveals his true and proper name. Yorhe Vadhe, Yahweh. 
a name that was so holy that the Jews, in order to not even come close to blaspheming this holy name, they put it in all capitals, L-O-R-D, Lord. Every time you see the name Lord in capitals, that is God's true name. The name that Jesus is saying that he wants to make holy. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, this is who has sent you. Listen to this last part. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This name that Jesus tells us to make holy, to make hallowed, is the name of God, the name that is above every name. Now, up until Jesus, they believed in the God of heaven. They believed in the Father, though they didn't call him that. When Jesus came, it revealed that there is the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus reminds us that we are called to make the name of Yahweh famous in the world, but we also want God to make his name famous in the world. And this has more significance than you may realize. A few years ago, I was interviewing at a church, and they did a background report on me, which any good church should do a background report on their employees, and here's what I discovered. Apparently, I'm wanted for hacking in San Jose, California. I know, I look exactly like someone who hacks computers, don't I? And here's what I discovered, is that there's all kinds of different Jason Millers in the world. In fact, we have a Jason Miller who works at the airport. I don't know if you guys knew that. So we have all kinds of Jasons in the world. We have all kinds of Jennifers and Lisas and even Indies. My, I thought my daughter's name was really unique until I met somebody else named Indy. But there's only one Yahweh. No one else has the name that God carries. His name is set apart from all other names. And so Jesus tells us to pray and part of our prayer is, Lord, make your name holy in the world. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, there's all kinds of different names for God, but there's only one true name. So the Israelites started trying to figure out names as a way to kind of describe who God is. And so we have words like Elohim, God, mighty creator, El Roy, the God who sees me, El Shaddai, God Almighty, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, Adonai, Lord, Master. And Jesus even introduced us to a new name for God, Abba, Daddy, Papa. But there's only one holy name, one name that belongs to God alone, Yahweh. You and I, when we look at the heart of worship, we must realize that God cares about his name because his reputation is attached to his name. Listen to 1 Chronicles 16, 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of his holiness. The name of God is meant to reflect who he is. There was a guy named King David. King David looked around at all the gods in the world, all the different false religions, Baal, uh, Ammon, all these different gods, and he saw that they all had temples, a house for them. And King David, one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, said, Lord, I look out and it's not right that everybody, every other god has a temple, a house for their name, but not yours. 
And so he goes to God and he says, I want to build a temple for you. I want this temple to be holy, to be set apart for you, Lord. And God says this to David, no, you don't get to build me a temple. And here's why, David. My name is holy and set apart. And your reign as king has been marked by blood and war. And I am not a God of war. I am a God of peace. So you don't get to build me the temple, but your son Solomon will. See, I want you to think about this for a moment. God's name is a reflection of his character. When somebody says Jason Miller and they say, yeah, he's six foot three, can dunk a basketball and runs really fast, you know immediately you're not talking about this guy, right? No one is, there's no one missing that. Because my name has certain attachments to me. Hopefully when you think of me, you think of somebody who is fun and loving and loves Jesus and loves people. And I've test me, I've got my, my quirks and my foibles and all those weird things, but my name has an attachment to it. God's name has an attachment to it. And here's the thing, you and I, the temple no longer exists. You are the temple of the living God now. And who you are is a representative of who the holiness of God is meant to be. So guess what? We as the church, the church is not the house of the Lord. You are. Did you catch that? The church is not the house of the Lord. The church is where the house of the Lord gathers. We're the ones who come together to make the name of Jesus famous. Amen? Even right now, we are in church, even though we're in a park, even though we're outdoors, because guess who's gathered here? The temple of the Lord. And as the temple of the Lord, we are meant to reflect the God that we worship. We make the name of Jesus famous when we live and act like Jesus does. How we love our city, how we love our neighbors matters. How we love each other. Jesus reminds us that when we pray, we pray with God's holiness, his character, his fame in mind. Uh, many years ago, I started signing my emails with this phrase. It was, make God famous. And one day I had somebody who challenged me on that and said, Jason, you realize there's all kinds of different religions that preach all kinds of different gods, but there's only one people that proclaim the name of Jesus. So I changed it to make Jesus famous. Because that's the desire I have for my life is I want to make Jesus famous. Do you want to make Jesus famous? If so, say amen. Now, we don't do that well. We don't do that perfectly because we're not Jesus. I can make Jesus famous and not be Jesus. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to mess up. That's part of our humanity. But God wants to work in us. And you and I were created for worship. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. See, how we make the name of Jesus famous is through our worship. And worship happens through a lot of different ways. Now, sometimes worship happens through our prayer, through our generosity and giving, through our acts of kindness, through fasting and solitude and obedience. But usually when Christians think of worship, we think of music. In fact, if you go to iTunes, you'll see an entire section that says worship music. We have it's become its own genre. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with worship music. How many of you ever wondered why we sing songs on a Sunday morning? I mean, it's kind of weird if you think about it. A bunch of people get together and we sing songs together. 
Why? Why do we sing songs in worship? Well, there's a couple things. And I want you to hear this. We don't just do it because it's a gathering point, though that is important. There's a few things that happen when we worship God through song. First of all, God tells us to worship through music. There's something holy and beautiful about music. Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Second, when we worship Jesus through song, when we worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it points us to what is to come. It points us to heaven. See, when we get to heaven, the pictures that we have so far that the Bible reveals to us is that we are going to stand before the Lamb of God, before the throne, and with all of creation, all of God's people, all of creation is going to say this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Over and over again. Now, we're not going to spend eternity just singing, but we are going to spend eternity worshiping because worship happens in all kinds of things. But singing touches the heart of God. But there's another reason. Now, actually, I want to read, listen to this, Revelation 5.13. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. But here's the last one. And this is the one I want you to hear the most. When we come together and sing in worship, it actually helps us remember. Colossians 3.16, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Now listen to this. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. If I were to go around this park today and say, how many sermons do you really remember? I mean like sections of sermons. Some of you don't remember what I just said two minutes ago. <laughs> Some of you might say, oh, I had a sermon once. I really liked it. And maybe you remember the big idea. But most of us can't remember sermons. We remember how we felt. We may remember a phrase, but we do not remember the whole of a sermon or a book. Maybe you've read a good book and you remember the idea of it, but you don't remember the paragraphs of the book. You remember the heart of the book. Our brains are actually wired to forget more than they are to remember things. It's a, a way God has created us that we're called. Our brains are actually designed so that we can forget because we can't store all the information that's there. But there's this amazing thing about the human brain. Now check this out. I did some research in neuroscience. And our brains do something remarkable. When we sing, our brains actually unlock different parts than you do when you listen to something or when you simply uh, see something. When you sing, it activates all kinds of different parts of your brains. Here's an example of this. Ready? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Right? Did anybody learn the alphabet a different way? Maybe you did, but how do most people learn it? Now, every once in a while, I still have to do that because I forget which letters go before the other ones. I'm like, H-I-J. Yeah, there we go. Like, and I hope, am I the only one who does that still? 
We are created, our brains are designed that when we sing, it actually attaches memories at different parts of the brain. They've done studies on Alzheimer's and Parkinson patients, and literally patients who don't remember their name, who don't remember their children's name, if you start playing a song on the piano, they can start singing along. And if they're a musician, they can often start playing. They don't even know how they're doing it, and here's why. Your brain is a marvelous thing that points to the glory of its creator. God designed your brain that when you worship, when you play an instrument, when you sing, you actually learn in the process. So the worship songs that we sing actually are reminding us of the God that we worship. Check this out. When you listen to the rhythm of the song, it it literally starts activating the motor, motor cortex and the cerebellum. Pitch and tone of a song, auditory cortex, cerebellum and prefrontal cortex start activating. When you anticipate the next lyric, prefrontal cortex. When you memorize the song, the hippocampus. But here's the remarkable thing. When you actually start to sing in worship, when you actually participate, when you lift your hands in worship, literally your brain starts to go on fire. All these different parts of your brain begin to activate and going into overdrive. Singing in worship literally helps you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The reason we join together in worship is not just because God loves it, though that should be the most important reason. It's also not just because it brings us together in unity, though that is really important. The biggest reason why you and I should do it is are in those difficult times when we feel distant from God, when we forget God's goodness. It's often the songs that we sing that will bring us back to God's faithfulness, remind us of who God is. Singing is holy on so many levels. Worship delights God. We worship God because he tells us to. We worship God because it points us to what's to come. That's heaven. We worship God because it helps us remember. And then lastly, our worship, not just our singing, but all of our worship ministers to and blesses the heart of Jesus. That word minister to means to attend to the needs. When we come together and worship, we are actually worshiping Jesus, we are ministering to his heart, to his fame. Now, I'm guilty of this, okay? So please don't think I'm pointing fingers. If you've ever walked out of a church service and went, wow, I didn't really get much out of worship, you missed the point because the worship wasn't about you in the first place. The real question we should be asking is, did Jesus get something out of our worship, amen? That's what we should be asking. It's not how much did you like the songs. What we should be asking is Jesus Did Jesus love the hearts of the people who were singing? Jesus doesn't need our worship, but he does desire it. Not because he's insecure, but because he alone is worthy. Now, here's the thing. The problem is not if we will worship. We will. Every single person in this room is an amazing worshiper. The question is, is who or what are you worshiping? We were created, designed to worship. And so by nature, you will worship. But are you going to worship a God who is worthy and holy, loving and compassionate, gracious, slow to envy, rich in love? 
Or are you going to worship money or fame, sex, power? All of those things, there's a reason why we can so quickly give our time to those because worship is part of our DNA. We're created for it. When Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he's reminding us that there are reasons why our worship matters. And so I want to end with three reasons why your worship should matter to you and to me. The first one is this. Whatever you worship will shape your identity. Whatever you worship will shape how you see yourself. Anybody who's been through our discipleship process called the journey process, we talk about this thing called the up in and out. Whatever you put as the highest part, the highest value for you is what will shape your identity. If it's money, you'll identify yourself as somebody rich. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. If you're somebody who desires uh, if it's about your children, your identity becomes, well, I'm a dad, I'm a mom, which I am. But guess what? I'm a father. But that's not my primary identity. I do not worship my children. I don't want them to worship me. Whatever we worship will shape our identity. The Apostle Paul said it this way. Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Whatever we live and move and have our being is the thing that we worship. So if it's my children, in my children I live and move and have my being. In other words, I, I exist for my children. I exist to give them everything they want so they can, they can be happy. And trust me, I want my children to be happy. I want my children to have good lives, but I do not exist for their glory. It's not my job. It's not my position. My name is Jason. What I do is pastor. Does that make sense? Pastor is not my identity. Pastoring is a calling on my life, but my identity is as Jason, a follower and lover, a disciple of Jesus. Our identities matter. I hope you guys get the idea there. When we, we have an identity problem that's been shaped by what we worship, and all of us are really good at that. Second, what we worship will change our desires. Whatever you worship will ultimately, you will desire, you will hunger and thirst for. When God becomes the object of your worship, you will literally begin to hunger and thirst for more of God. Psalm 42, 1 through 2, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? Colossians 3.17, whatever I do, whether in word or deed, I do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Psalm 27.4, one thing I ask for from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And then lastly, and this is the one, this is a big one, Worship is warfare. There is, a world, there is a war going on in the world that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. It's a war for your mind, for your souls, and it's a war that's fought through truth and spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. That's the Holy Spirit moving in us through us. But more importantly, we worship the God of truth. And there is, a, there is a war going on against truth right now. 
And when we worship, when we sing, when we elevate God as the highest thing, the thing that we desire most, we wage war because Satan hates it when we worship Jesus. Did you get that? Satan hates it when you worship Jesus. It makes his blood boil. He, it, everything inside of him despises it. This is why he tries so hard to get in the way of the church. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 2 Corinthians 10.3-4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, to destroy strongholds. You want to know what our weapon is? Worship is our weapon. When we elevate Jesus, when we come together and proclaim his name in song, it wages war. It declares truth and the spirit of truth that goes in it. There was this King Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 20, 21. He's about ready to go into battle. And instead of sending bow and arrows and horses and all those things, he gets all the worship leaders and he says, go out in front of the army and the worship leaders lead them into battle and they lead in victory. You want to know how we're going to win the war against the enemy? It's not through my might, not through your strength. It's through our worship in the spirit and truth. Amen. When we come together and declare the praises, the name of Jesus unabashedly, if you're sitting on the outskirts of this park right now, I want you to hear this. We love Jesus. Say that with me. We love Jesus. That's what we're about. We're not about Zion. We're about the name of Jesus being glorified and magnified in Clear Lake, Iowa. Amen? So when we come together and worship, we do something remarkable. When you have times of doubt, when you're in times of wrestling, when cancer strikes, there was a word given this morning. There's somebody here this morning right now who is battling through breast cancer. And a word was given, and I want you to hear this. Trisha, Trisha McGrath came up to me and said, hey, I feel like I have a word from the Lord. There's somebody here who has breast cancer who needs healing. If you need healing today from breast cancer, I want you to go to the prayer tent and get prayer. We want to pray over you. If you have breast cancer, if you have cancer, period. Actually, I'm going to do something. I just feel like I need to. Can we just pray right now? If you know somebody who's battling cancer or another illness, would you just extend a hand with me? We're going to proclaim victory over cancer in the name of Jesus. Amen? All right, let's do it. Heavenly Father, right now, God, you know what's going on. You know that there are people here that are wrestling, that their bodies are fighting cancer. Right now, in the bold name of Jesus, we come as a, a community of faith believing in you. Jesus, we declare victory over breast cancer. We declare victory over pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, bone cancer, all cancers. In the name of Jesus, we declare healing for your fame, for your glory, for your honor, because of your power. In Jesus' name, and shout it with me. Everybody said, amen. We need a God who moves, and this is what happens in worship. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, and you want to know what they do? Instead of Woeing in their sadness, in their brokenness, they've just been beaten to an inch of their life. They begin to sing praises to the Lord, singing in worship. There's a challenge. If you need victory in your life this morning, maybe it's over your marriage. Your marriage is falling apart. You want to know where victory is found? It's found in worship. 
Maybe you've got a sin that you're struggling with, wrestling, pornography, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, whatever you need, you need first to start with worship. If you need freedom, heart transformation, a change the focus, make Jesus the object of your worship, not yourself, not your spouse, not your children. Make Jesus the aim. Uh, back in 1989, I became a Christian. And something happened. 1989, I learned to play the guitar. And there was this beautiful thing my youth pastor taught me. He taught me how to make three chords. And as I started making those chords, while all my friends were playing Stairway to Heaven and rocking out to Metallica, I was singing Humble Thyself in the Sight of the Lord. I was sitting in my bedroom for hours at a time. And as I did that, I began to meet with the Lord in worship. And I'll tell you, those times with the Lord shaped my identity. The man that you see here today, a big part of that formation was first through the church and through people loving me, but it was also in those times when I would sit with the Lord in my bedroom and just worship him. And I'm talking like this is before oceans existed. This is before we had like all the cool songs we sing now. How many of you guys remember those old school songs back in the 80s and 90s? You know what I'm talking about? We got to bring it over here. So here, here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to have a little mini worship service, and this is going to be like when I was in my bedroom with the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to sing with me, and you're probably going to recognize some of these songs. They're pretty old. If you're a newer Christian or you, or you were born anytime after, I don't know, 1997, you may not know these. But I, I want you to hear this, is that worship will shape you. And in those moments when we see God, Sing it with me. with me.
Sing that one more time with me. I love you, Lord. And I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice. Would you just lift your hands to the Lord? an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power and love. Our God is an awesome God. Sing it out. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power and love. Our God is an awesome God. And our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power and love. Our God is an awesome God. Just the voices. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom and power and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. Can we just give a clap for Jesus? He is good. Here's what I want you to hear, is that our prayer, when we come together in worship, when God's name is made holy, that is where victory is found in your life. When you're struggling and you don't know what to do, turn and worship 
Jesus, even when you don't have the words to say, we go back to your childhood songs. Sing those songs and those quiet moments. Come and worship the King of Kings. Amen? Jesus is good, and he is alive in power, and he wants to move. Know that Jesus loves you. He's crazy about you. And if you don't know Jesus, if you need prayer, we want to invite you to come and receive prayer. At this time, we're going to come and take our tithe and offering as an act of worship. Because we serve an amazing and awesome God. Amen? Amen. Let's just close and worship and come and bring your tithe and offering to the Lord. God is good.